Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Summer is here. And that means along with pool parties and barbecues, it's time for our staff summer picks. Every other week, a member of the Here's the Thing staff will choose their favorite episodes from our archives and host the show themselves. First up is our producer, Kathleen Russo. Kathleen has been with me from the very beginning of this podcast. She's chosen to share with you two groundbreaking women in entertainment documentary producer Sheila Nevins, and journalist, author, and editor Tina Brown. Two extraordinary women in media brought to you by another. That's Kathy. Stay tuned for our other staff picks throughout the summer. And now the legendary Kathleen Russo. Thanks, Alec. I chose Sheila and Tina's interviews, both recorded in 2017, because they are two women I deeply respect and admire. They are the uber media mavens. I met Sheila in 2005 at HBO's headquarters in New York City. My husband, the monologist Spalding Gray, died the year before, and Sheila contacted me because she was a fan of his work. She really wanted to produce a documentary on his life. We got Steven Soderbergh to direct, but sadly, it never came to fruition with HBO. We took it elsewhere, but the meetings we had with Sheila were so lively and fun in her leopard motif apartment. It was a great distraction for me at the time. Let's listen to Alex's conversation with Sheila, where she's talking about her childhood. If you've been moved by a documentary in the past 40 years, there's a chance you have Sheila Nevins to thank. As head of HBO Documentary Films since 1979, she's exerted more influence on the medium than perhaps anyone in its history. So much so that the New York Times says filmmakers, quote, fret about her outsized power, but also worry about what will happen when she's gone. Sheila Nevins has overseen the production of literally hundreds of documentaries which have won dozens of Oscars, and she's credited or blamed for being one of the creators of reality television through 90s hits like Real Sex 
and taxi cab confessions. Whether they're shot in a war zone or the back of a taxi, Sheila Nevin's productions are powerful, brazen, and unflinchingly honest. But when it comes to telling her own story, truth gets trickier. Her new book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales, blends fiction and reality. It's not a bio. As someone said to me, it's a sly memoir. Who counseled you on how to write the book? Who? Nobody. Nobody? Nobody. You knew instinctively to do this this way? I have no idea it was right. I knew when to hide, and I knew when to overhear, and I knew the names of the characters without ever... Some of them are Sheila, and some of them are Priscilla or Melissa, and... Um, I was going to do that in my book, and I didn't. Maybe you're nicer than me. Right. More honest. I, I just more honest. felt I just... that when I gave the character name, I protected a lot of people. Or when I overheard it, I wasn't in it. And then I could write more freely about the truth of it. I don't know that I could have written certain things if it had been me. In her book, Nevins uses a few characters to paint a portrait of the male-dominated world she navigated. Only one of those characters is named Sheila Nevins, but they're all strong, smart women who fight and sleep their way to the top. In a way, the sexual politics of the 60s and 70s is a sideshow. Sheila Nevins' true passion is to immerse herself in the lives of her subjects. And like many passions, this one makes you suffer. I mean, I think if you're a surgeon, the person is anesthetized when you're cutting out their heart. But when you're making a documentary, the person is alive and kicking. And they stay with you. Um, you know, I, I can't explain it. When you go to sleep at night, they, they interrupt counting sheep. You know, you see, you see sadness all the time. There's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot of people who have no way out. Mm -hmm. I mean, Our we loss. have a way out. Right. We have a way out. We have more options. We have yeah. more options. And without empathy, there's no humanity. And I think docus are the last resort for effective, if that's the right use of the word, feeling for someone you didn't know. This is the great thing about a docu. You turn it on, it's in your living room, okay? You didn't invite it. You thought, I'll try it. And then suddenly you're crying for someone you never knew before. Mm -hmm. And they're not, it's not an actor playing a part. It's not something that was scripted. It's another human being f trying to live in this country or another country. And it stays with you. It's very difficult. I mean, you really, you really agonize. I agonize. You know, I'm you... not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Just walk into that closet full of Emmys and Oscars you have. And maybe that yeah, will that doesn't your make spirits. you happy. They I'm usually teasing. fall on your foot I'm and teasing. crack your toe. They're, they're door stoppers for most people. I don't <laughs> have them. But... Pick one if you can and tell us a bit about one that really, really just crushed you. What was one that was an extraordinarily difficult experience for you to bring that film to the public? Maybe the one about Tourette's, even though it was by far not the best documentary on HBO, but because I had been there 25 years before I was willing to come out as a parent of a child who had Tourette's. And Your son? My son, David, yeah. And so I think that um, with his permission... Uh, I was able to write about it in my book, but mainly I was able to make a film for schools so that kids that had Tourette's would not be bullied because it was, um, you know, if you were fat, you were bullied. If you stuttered, you were bullied. But if you had Tourette's, nobody knew what you had. They thought you were dopey. They'd push you. They'd imitate you. This one was tough because I had to go to my bosses and say, I want to make this film about Tourette's. It doesn't affect everybody. I want to do it for my kid. And this is a big place called HBO. And they said, do it. You've earned it. And I did it. Now, 
for people who don't understand Tourette's beyond, you know, the outbursts, the vocal outbursts and so forth, when did you when do you first become aware of a child having that? At what age does it exhibit itself? Well, the vocal outbursts are less than five percent. Right. So the fact that that's called coprolalia, and um, that means that you yell four letter words. Can I say them on this show? I think our audience is well aware uh, of the full I glossary of I figured if you're them. here, they so know. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> the kid who yells "fuck shit, piss, piss, fuck you, fuck you in your ass, your mother, fuck," yeah. that is less than five percent. Right. But the media has it's the most. It, first of all, it gave the media a chance to use the words yeah. and bleep them and make it exciting. And secondly, it was unfair to the kids. Yeah, it's Amy Poehler and Deuce Bigelow. <laughs> yes, she does it, I yeah. Guess. yeah. But um, people like Robin Williams, there's also a very interesting part of Tourette's, which is called echolalia. He had that? Yes. Where imitative behavior is part of the affliction. So in other words, you go to a movie, you come back, the kid does the whole the, almost the whole movie right. and does the the actual sounds of the voices of the different people. But the film was difficult for you and painful. It was very painful because, one, I had to tell David we were going to do it. Two, um, he had to be willing to come out as a kid who had Tourette's. We both agreed that it was a necessary film. It wasn't great, but it was useful. You know, there, there are different kinds of docus. What about a filmmaker, meaning you have people coming in they all, you know, many of them want something from you. They, they want you to help well, make I a project. Cast, I cast the films the way you would cast a movie, uh, you know, and I, I try to find filmmakers who have a passion for a subject, and then I try to put them together with that subject. So if it's me a maximum culpa about abuses, let's say, in the Catholic Church, I'll find someone who is a renegade Catholic to be able to go after it, both with the passion of being a kid who was brought up that way, and at the same time, someone who's able to look at it with with the right amount of subjective involvement. And in that case, it turned out to be Alex Gibney. But it's very different. I mean, Alexandra Pelosi is doing a film for us now on... Everybody says, let's do an anti-Trump film, okay? I must get five pitches a day about, let's do this, let's do who voted, let's do the Democrats who voted, let's do the women, the college graduate. Every day there's something. And so it occurred to us that maybe what we should do is go back to the Founding Fathers. Maybe we should go back to the dream of what democracy was. And so this film is about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. And I watched it last night pretty late, and I found myself getting weepy over the dream. You know, not laughing at it, but weepy over the original... The beauty of it. The beauty of it. Mm. The beauty of being free from the king. And in the descriptions of breaking away from the king, it was as if it was on, you know, CNN that night. Mm -hmm. The king had just transmigrated into somebody else. And it was terrifying and also illuminating about the prophetic vision of the founding fathers. It's really extraordinarily interesting. And at the same time, you know, complex. But, you know, this whole country was founded on getting away from from a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, which is uh, maybe some kind of a stereo track. You can um, uh, you can try to paint a picture for me of what the what the company was like when you started. Because when I, I always joke with people that HBO, when I was first living in New York in the early 80s, HBO would come on and they had that theme song that sounded like an Israeli folk song. Da, 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 it was an Israeli da, da, folk da, da, song. Da, da, yeah, that song would come da, da, on. Then da, da, they would da. play the same. It was like MTV. <laughs> they played Billy Idol and Flock of Seagulls all day long. And uh, so in that time, how has it changed? And how has it changed for you as a woman in the business since in your time? I'm not sure how much it's changed. Okay. I would really? argue. I don't think so. I don't really think so. I think I was an anomaly, so I was not a threat. Because who else was going to work 20 hours a day, have a sick kid, 
take all the jokes, do the whole thing. I have had nine bosses in 35 years. It's pretty hard because each one was a magic slate. So anything you'd done before was unknown or not necessarily valid to them because they had to reestablish themselves. Mm. So it was, listen, I'm not complaining. Yeah. I've had the greatest job in the world. But um, I was an anomaly. Who, what woman wanted to work 20 hours a day? Who wanted to do docus anyway? It was an eight-hour service. So what was tough for you as a woman? What was hard? Not getting pinched. That's the great advantage to getting older. You're no, only no, there from that. the neck up. The hanky-panky's over. Yeah, yeah, it's neck up now. But you had to endure that in the early days? Maybe. Okay. I want to keep my job. Okay. But not even on Most your job. Most of those people are gone. But, does it, does, but it doesn't yes, matter. Yes, of course I had right. to do, deal with that. Of course I did. And okay. I dealt with it readily and aggressively and happily because right. I didn't know any better. And I, I, I mean, I've discussed this with Gloria Steinem. It was the only thing I knew I wanted that job badly. I wanted to make something of it. And if it required, you know, a hand on a knee or whatever else. Um, you overlooked. I looked, but then I turned away. I wouldn't say I overlooked. I felt it deep down, but I, I But you weren't it. compromised in some, in some extreme way. People just took casual liberties with you. I thought it was the rules of the game. I thought it was the rules of the game. Why would I know? It was like shooting a gun. You know, I don't like it, but I, I need to learn how. I knew that was the way. I did what I had to do. You didn't want me to not get this job, did you? Uh, I'm glad that you were as open-minded as you were <laughs> to no, the benefit was, of the documentary was, uh, film community. happily slutty. Happily so. Because I didn't know anything else. The job was worth more than my sexual identity. Wow. There were no human resources to protect me. There was nothing. And I was pretty... You, 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 no, you had no protector. No. That's no amazing. protector. And I wanted to do it. And were I didn't want him to time? give it away. Yeah. I just had just gotten married. Yeah. At the time. Yes. Would you go home and like, did your husband know that you were enduring all this... Groping and no, all this crap? I, but no, because I could brush him. it off. Right. You know, I've done a lot of shows with hookers. And I've done a lot of stuff at Cat House in Las Vegas. Were the men being taken advantage of or the women? Yeah. Have you ever seen our Cat House show? They bought 100 books, the Cat House. You see, I don't have anyone else I They're know who bought 100 book books. At the desk of the They're cat house. probably giving it out. Now, uh, the book. The book. When you make films and you, you get involved... You're giving notes. You're telling them, I'm watching the clip of you from Alexandra's thing where you're saying, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. <laughs> and w what you were looking for in a film, what you were expecting of a filmmaker of a film, did you expect the same of yourself when you wrote this book? No. You did. Okay, talk about that. No. Why? Because in a strange way, I wrote the book in a very selfish way. And when I'm in an editing room, I don't think I'm particularly selfish. I wrote it because... I didn't want to be the legend of documentaries. I didn't want to be a docu-diva. What did you want to be? I wanted to be a person, like everybody else. Are you in this book? I think so. Or, or would you I say that there's I... some writing here that's the equivalent of the plastic surgery of writing? Without question. There's a lot of plastic surgery in this book. Not a lot. There's enough. Okay, I'll take that back. I mean, okay, you yeah. said I look good, so it must be enough, not well, a lot. Well, and if the book sells, <laughs> good for you. Because if the, if the book does as I'm well as you look... Then there you go. Week. Then the Can book is doing as well that? as you look. So the no. plastic surgery in the writing <laughs> as well. That's only part of it. That's only part of it. Why does everybody pick up the plastic surgery? I remember the lawyer from um, McMillan asking me if there was someone named Melissa. L Melissa Van Holdenvoss sleeps with her boss. It's the 60s, and she can't get ahead any other way. And um, he called and he said, do you know anyone named Melissa? And Mr. Pennybroth is the name of the boss. Now, who 
his name Mr. Pennybroth, let's be real. It's a great name. He said, is, but it just came. The name came. Um, uh, Mr. Pennybroth, uh, you know, fucked Melissa, and Melissa got a promotion. And it was 1963. It wasn't her fault. And that's the way, those were the rules of the game, right? Well, I mean, they drove me crazy. Is there anyone named Melissa at HBO? I said, I'm sure there are a number of women named Melissa here. Is there a Mr. Pennybroth? Have you ever worked for Mr. Pennybroth? I said, nobody would have the name Mr. Pennybroth. They said, you never know. So then I looked in the, you know, I typed it into my iPad. I couldn't find a Pennybroth. Similar. But I don't know where those names came from. So is it really, am I hiding if there's nobody by that name? Then who is it? Then it must be me, right? I don't know the answer. But I mean, <laughs> I don't, still don't know. It might not be the bravest writing in the world, but it's very I'm interesting writing. I'm not brave. Right. I never would say I was yeah. brave. I'm honest. It's oh, no, also no, about I, adultery. It's also about uh, I don't care about falling in and out of love. It's also about anti-Semitism. It's also about your heart being broken. Well, can, can we pick? Well, the, let's you stop want, there. Let's talk with can a we broken pick, can heart. We, can we pick one topic? Well, yeah. do, do, you talked about adultery. Oh, who's adultery? Certainly not my own. Okay, not your own. How do I know? Those eyes of yours, it's amazing. <laughs> You've got those wonderful eyes. They're all and made they, up. And, and, and they're, they're real. In the morning, they don't look uh, like no, this. No, 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 it doesn't. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't want to know what they look like in the morning. That's not my business. That's not my business. You've been happily married to Sydney yes. all these years, of yes. course. Yes, And did you ever describe what it's like for you to fall in love? Because you're a pretty tough broad. You're a pretty no-nonsense woman. You're tough. Well, I mean... In a good way. How, what's it like to fall in love? Love redefines itself. As you get older. When you fell in love with him, what did you fall in love with? Sydney or my heartbreak in my book? Both. Well, okay. take, take Sydney first. No, my heartbreak first. Okay. My heartbreak. <laughs> this is my show. No, go ahead. No, it's my show it, now. It, it is, it is I mean, now. Not, where would you be without me sitting here? You'd be talking to yourself. Heartbreak happens once. I believe. Real heartbreak. And what happened? You don't repair. Describe so the situation. Then, well, do what you do in your book. The woman in the third person meets who? Sometimes I'm myself, sometimes I'm not. I'm really quite crazy. Though it's a young girl who goes to the Yale Drama School. She falls in love with a guy. She goes home to his very fancy house in Connecticut with initials on the thing and Gilbert Stewart pictures and all that. He goes to Harvard. They meet at a law school moot court thing. And um, the mother says to her, aren't there any interesting Jewish men in the law school? And you never see him again. That's heartbreak. That's heartbreak. You, cared, you liked him. You cared about him. I loved him. Wow. How I long were you with him? him? A semester. Right. A That's year, enough. A year. Young. A year of, you know, sort of make-believe and thinking that life made sense. A semester's a big chapter of your life when you're young. Big chapter of your life. And especially when you've never really been in love before. You don't get over that. You don't get over that hurt. It takes a long, 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 long What did you time. fall in love with about Sydney? Comfort, kindness, and... Good partner. Good partner, friendship, intelligence. But I'm not sure he could have ever broken my heart. I think you break your heart one time. Do you? I think if you're someone who becomes other people, then you become capable of other oh, lives. Oh, that's different. But I'm I mean, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, on all stages of a rocket. I see. And that I, stage no, falls I'm off when much I go to the this same. level. I'm pretty the same, much the same person. I'm not. So you mean you change? I'm the same person I was 50 years ago. I'm just old. Coming up, Sheila Nevins talks about being raised by a communist. Sheila Nevins has nurtured many documentary filmmakers. Joe Berlinger, creator of HBO's Paradise Lost, is one of them. 
His films tell a shocking story of justice denied. Three boys in the Bible Belt wrongfully convicted of ritual sexual abuse and murder. Berlinger said the story haunted him. You know, my first kid was born while we were editing this film, and I would be sitting, you know, at the editing bay looking at the most horrific autopsy photos and crime scene footage. You know, I would go home at night after having these images, like, emblazoned on your brain, and I would drop the, you know, the door of the crib and pick up my new infant who has just arrived a few months ago. And every hallmark that my child would go through, you know, kindergarten, middle school, high school, I'd think, my God, these guys are still rotting in prison. I just felt we had a, you know, we had a moral obligation to keep telling the story. Listen to the full conversation at heresthething.org. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, And then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Hey, guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Sheila Nevins' nearly four-decade stewardship of HBO documentaries has helped usher in a golden age for the form. But when she started, the very word documentary could doom a project to obscurity. I think that uh, docus have become hot. When I began in this business, 
we didn't even want to use the word documentary. When we did promos for films, we would call them docutainment. We invented this <laughs> lunatic word because we were afraid that if we said documentary, people would feel that it was for the elite and that it was about politics and that it was not going to be about human stories. And so we, we hid behind this word docutainment. And then slowly but surely, it took a good 20, 25 years, we began to say, well, maybe it's not such a dirty word. And reality programming sort of said real people can be interesting in a trivial way. Now, how do we take that real people thing and bring it back to real stories that have heart and soul? So then somehow it went docutainment, reality TV, yay, documentary, go for it. Say that real people, people without celebrity, people who are trying to survive in a complicated world. And say in their own words. And say it in their own words. Right. And not either scripted. have to have scripted or apologize for it, but let it go for itself. So if a woman would be living on a minimum wage, for instance, um, we would almost cast that woman to be someone who could tell that story. I got three kids. I'm working in a nursing home. I'm making $7 an hour. I got to have three jobs. My husband is on drugs. He's left me. We, we felt we could tell those stories with real people. We didn't have to use narrative, all due respect, but we could, we could elevate the common man's story and use the word documentary. And I think they became somewhat precious and difficult um, and, and had parody at festivals, began to have parody at festivals with narrative. So suddenly, Toronto would have a whole section on documentary. Sundance was actually the first. Uh, but docus at that time were hot docs. They had their own festivals. They were not part of festivals that had actors and famous people. And, you know, they were sort of an offshoot. I think now docus have gotten parody. But is it safe to say, I'd love to hear your viewpoint about this, that, uh, and not that it's a seller's market now, but is it tougher for you to find what you want? It's so competitive? It's horrifying. Right. It's, it's, it's horrifying. It, your job is harder than it was 20 years My ago. My job is much harder because, first of all, a lot of people have Monopoly money, and I'm still playing with real cash. So I really can't play the How Monopoly. So? Well, Netflix has tons of dollars. Right. And, and they, you don't? No. Not for docus. No. Can why, I why, why is that? The company is the company's mission or what have you? I can't speak for the company. Okay. I'm a, a peon. I would say that um, it's not a high priority. Stars rule and series They still rule. view themselves as, as almost like a studio. I think so. I think the development of a series is where the money's at. It's where the sales are at. Game of a Thrones. One shot. Yeah. They're chasing oh. that. <laughs> That's where they're there. Yeah. They're not there. If you took docus off HBO, I think they have a million places to go. Ten years ago, if you took docus off HBO, you wouldn't have a place to find them. Right. So it's tough. It's really tough. Let's talk about your childhood and how you grew up. Were you a moviegoer? No, a I wasn't goer, allowed to ballet? watch television. No, no, no. What was it like? My mother was a communist. She had gone to school with Ethel Rosenberg. And so when Ethel Rosenberg was assassinated, or whatever the word is, in the electric chair, I thought any minute they were coming to take my, my mother. Uh, my best friend was Billy, and his father was the editor of the Daily Worker. And I came home one day Where'd from— Where did you grow up? 2nd Avenue and 6th Street. My father was a postman. You grew up on the Lower East Side? Yeah, I'm a poor girl. See, that's why I wrote the book, because everybody thought I went to Barnard, I went to Yale, I went to performing arts. Ritzy, titsy, 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 doorman. You clawed your way to the top. You're the Jewish Eve Harrington. No, I was very good. I didn't claw my way. 
I was fucking good. Yeah, and I'm oh, that's still what good. I mean. I'm really smart. And I'm smart about what people might watch. And I'm smart about self-criticism. And I'm happy to be wrong as long as I'm right more than So how I'm did wrong. you end up in this business? What did your father do for a living? My father was a postman and a bookie. Oh, how did you end up in this business with no Because media, I went to the high school. You went to, you, went to, you went to drama school. No, but I majored in directing at Yale. Okay. Because I knew I was not a good actress. I thought that I would, and I was a terrible dancer. I thought that I would have been good at storytelling and knowing when it was wrong and when it was right. I had a great teacher at Yale who we, we also had to take acting classes, and she said to me, you are the perfect director because you're always watching. And I thought, that's true. I'm always, wa- I'm always looking in. I'm always watching. Taxi Cab Confessions, which we did, was an example of a show that came from observations. Like, I found that when I was in a taxi, I knew I'd never see that person again. I could tell them things I wouldn't tell anybody else. I thought, if I'm doing this, other people can be doing this. Why don't we do Taxi Cab Confessions and take the car out at 5 and go through the night? And then we did it. And there were great stories, great secret stories that people tell. And then we would ask them to sign a release, and very often they didn't. Some of the best stories are hidden in the lock and key. Now, here's the last thing I want to say to you. You went to Barnard. Yes. And you went to Yale. Yes. And you've had this great career. Yes. And you've won all these awards. Yes. And your name is synonymous with the highest level of documentary filmmaking of the last 30, 35 years. Will you deliver my memorial service? I I would consider it. If I'm I'm available, Do you have to get paid? No, no, no. Okay, fine. I'll I'll put you down on the list. I appreciate your career. No, I... That's why you're here. Okay. But but last but not least, there's something about you. There's this woman thing about you. You go and you make this effort and the uh, the beautification and the kind of corrections and all this other stuff. And and you look phenomenal, by the way. Yeah. But I just want to say there's a thing about you. You know, you bathe in this world of the stark and the real. But there's a part of me that yeah, yeah. I think you want to be in love again. I see really? you in a bathrobe on a terrace <laughs> in Paris, and you're just having the longest kiss. Yeah. In the world. Is that what you want? Is it is you I think do you want to fall in love want. again? <laughs> <laughs> I already have that actually. I don't really want to be in a bathrobe on a terrace and it's a good you thing don't. you're not my psychiatrist. You don't. No. You don't want to be in love again and no. have a passion? Oh, no. Romance. No, you don't. I want to make the best documentary in the world. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all I want. I just offered I want people you to buy love, my book. romance, bathroom, Paris. I don't believe it. And you'd no. rather make that. I want to make a docu that wins a prize. We're going to stop right there because that's why you're the greatest. I don't want that. You just don't even I go there. Make, I want Alexandra's docu to win awards. I wanted to make people know about the the beginning of the founding fathers and the dream of the country. That's what I want to do. I mean, I'm not square and stupid and idealistic. More than anything. More than anything. What do I want? What do you want us to make great movies? Yeah. That's it. I think that's true. It makes me almost want to cry when you say that. Now let's turn to Alex's conversation with Tina Brown. After Tina came in for this interview, I approached her about doing her own podcast. She loved the idea. And one thing led to another. Our first meeting was at her infamous townhouse in New York City. And I was let in and waited for Tina in the dining room. In the distance, I could see her husband, Sir Harold Evans, working in his office. And then I began to look at all the photographs on the wall of Tina with people I had only read about. We got a deal with Wondery to produce a podcast for the year and called it TBD with Tina Brown. I learned so much from working with Tina. She was tough, but she was by far the best editor I've ever worked with, not to mention her interviewing skills. 
We only worked on TBD for a year, but it was truly an honor to produce a podcast with this trailblazer. 1983, crime and unemployment were still high, but it was morning in corporate America. The Dow was up by a third in six months, and the go-go 80s had begun. Among the many who landed in New York to make their fortune that year was a hotshot magazine editor from London who would chronicle and then shape that decade like no other. Tina Brown was 29 years old. Her story became inseparable from that of her creation, a relaunched 1920s glossy that came to define the Reagan era, Vanity Fair. Brown was a decisive boss, an instinctive editor, and a pioneer of layout. But that's only a part of what secured her place on top of New York society. She brought to her dinner parties an outsider's power of social observation and a wit so sharp you didn't know you were bleeding until you were halfway home. But Tina Brown can tell her own story. She did, in fact, in real time. Her new book, Vanity Fair Diaries, is a series of diary entries starting the day she first landed in New York for Vanity Fair. Wednesday, May the 1st, 1985. Thursday, January the 10th, 1990. Monday, Wednesday, Sunday, April the 10th, 1983. I am here in NYC at last, brimming with fear and insecurity. Getting in late last night on British Airways, I suddenly felt the enormousness of New York City. She made it to the big leagues because four years earlier, barely out of Oxford, Tina Brown landed the editorship of a languishing old magazine called Tatler, after everyone else turned down the job. And I turned it into this very buzzy little glossy. And Cy Newhouse, who was then the chairman of Condé Nast, then after two years of me editing it, three years, he came in and he bought it for Condé Nast. So that's how I joined Condé Nast, was that I was really brought into the family of Condé Nast with Tatler. And you were and you were over there, obviously. When I was in London, in London, absolutely. And how long did you do that uh, under his ownership? Well, I left actually after about a year because the Tatler had been this kind of scrappy little startup. And when Condé Nast bought it, uh, I missed the insurgent nature of the public. You know, I, I loved having my little team of insurgents, these young Turks that I had out of college. And then when Condé Nast brought it, I felt it had become a sort of stately thing. And I, I just, you know, I, I love being in the kind of uh, the rebel band, you know. So I, I left, actually. To People writing. don't normally put you in the rebel band. <laughs> well, I know. You've been in some pretty ivory the, towers well, in your lifetime. Right. But rebel band is where I began. And, and you so like that. I love that. And I had a very brilliant young group who all went on to do great things at Condé Nast. So I, le- I left. And then as I left, I kept hearing that Condé Nast had launched this new magazine in America, uh, Vanity Fair, that this was, they were bringing back this icon, this old magazine of the 20s and 30s that had had all these amazing, you know, people like Claire Booth Luce and, and, and Dorothy Parker and so on writing for it. And I was very attracted to that because I'm a sort of magazine romantic. So I never thought I would get to edit it, but I, I you know, we heard it like the music in the other room. Then Condé Nast launched Vanity Fair in 83, and it was a complete debacle, you know, the first two Why? editors. Well, it was one of those things where the sort of the pre-hype uh, sort of almost killed the magazine. It was a complete dissonance between the magazine they were advertising and hyping and the magazine they put out. They, what was the chasm between the, the two? The chasm between the two was that they said, uh, great magazine comes back from the dead, legendary magazine, you'll never see anything more exciting, more glamorous, more important than this magazine. And then they hired 
a very bookish, uh, very, you know, a, a nerdy, uh, smart guy from the New York Times who'd never been a magazine editor Who before. was that? His name was Richard Locke. Okay. And, you know, on paper, he was a good hire. He was a brainy guy, but he'd never done a magazine. And magazines, it's, it's all about the chemistry of the words and the pictures and the headlines and the, you know, and the captions and all of the things that make a magazine dance. He didn't know how to do that. So it became, it was a very boring magazine. And who was after him? And then they hired, they fired him and brought on Leo Lerman, who was the former editor, uh, features editor of Vogue. He was uh, a kind of 75-year-old, you know, culture maven, uh, old kind of gossipy old guy who, who you know, who, who was the sort of the darling of the ladies who lunch, completely antique, uh, had absolutely no concept of how to do this thing at all. He then uh, flamed out. And when he was there, I was asked by by Nast to come in and sort of consult because I then left Tatler and they thought, well, this young Turk who, you know, who then split, let's bring her into American Nast and see whether she can help old Leo kind of get the thing right. And they paid you to consult. They paid me to consult. And I spent three months there and I realized that Leo was never going to get this right, that it was a complete fiasco. Um, he was fiercely jealous of me anyway and didn't want me anywhere near it. And I realized, hey, I could do this thing. Why am I being so timid? You and you know? wanted to. I then really wanted to, yes. I decided I'd made a mistake of not sort of pitching myself to do it, that I should have pitched myself to do it. I kind of felt that I'd wimped out by not saying to them at the beginning, I'd love to do this. You so know? from the time you finished at Tatler and then your consultancy lasts, how long before you take over Vanity Fair? Um, it was about nine months, really. So not even a year. Not even a year, really. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I came back. So my Vanity Fair diaries really sort of begin at that time because I came in as a consultant in, in the summer of 83 with Leo and the, the the diaries sort of show the rising realization that I should be the editor of this magazine. This magazine and I were made to to make music together. I left New York, went back to London, and they fired Leo and brought me back as editor in 1984. So to the extent that you can say, I mean, all people really have in the popular culture is um, Devil Wears Prada and all these very, very kind of theatrical representations of the world of publishing. Is it really that one person has to dominate and their will has to call the day? You had to sit there with a group of people and say, it's got to be this and this, that you took their advice. Well, what did you do? I mean, a great editor isn't an autocrat. I mean, you have to have a vision in the same way the director has to have a vision of a movie. And you have to have a worldview, too. I mean, my, my feeling was that Vanity Fair, I knew what I wanted to do with Vanity Fair. I wanted to, to combine the elegance and glamour of the magazine, of the famous magazine of the 20s and 30s, with some of that narrative gristle of journalism that had then become uh, uh, the sort of uh, defining feature of the great magazines of then the 70s and 80s, like Rolling Stone, like New York Magazine. So I wanted to modernize that formula, if you like, and then bring a kind of real modern spin. And the modern spin I brought, because this was 1984, was we were in the Reagan era, right? We just, uh, Ronald Reagan was on a glide path to re-election. I came in as a London uh, outsider who didn't know really much about America. And I was just plunged into this world of Reagan's America, which was this kind of black tie, wildly uh, consumerish, you know. Bob Colicello. (laughs) Bob Colicello, he was on the magazine. It was just, I mean, I, I, it boggles my mind when I, when I read the diaries now and when I started to compile them, how much we went out. I mean, every night it was like I had red nails and the long dress and it was like yeah. the black tie dinners. and Yeah, the high-end New York. New York and high-end New York. You know, Nancy Reagan and her walkers and Jerry Zipkin was this socialite with a face like a B-day. Nan Kempner, <laughs> Betsy Kempner, Bloomingdale, Betsy Bloomingdale, Pat Buckley. That's exactly, you got those names. And are. they were 
out there, you know, and it was enormous fun to cover it. And then in the meantime, in, in then in LA, there was all this kind of the rise of of, of the spellings, you know, uh, and, and candy spelling and the big houses and the monster mansions and the whole of this thing. So it was a wonderful world to cover. And I sort of felt that our mission was to dramatize it, make it sing in our pages. And I hired my very first hire as a writer actually was Dominic Dunn. And mm. Dominic Dunn, uh, I first met when I came as a consultant in the summer at the dinner party of Marie Brenner, who was at Vanity Fair. And he was this out-of-work film producer. Mm-hmm. And he was next to me. I love Nick. And he was so great. And he was so entertaining at dinner. And then he told me this horrendous story that his daughter had been murdered. And right. he was on his way out to L.A. to uh, the trial of his daughter's murderer. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't you keep a diary? Being a great diarist myself, I said, you know, keep a diary. Maybe you would make it into something to read, and I'd love to publish it. So he his eyes lit up, and off he went. And the piece that he brought back, which was published in the magazine, was an absolutely epic piece of sort of narrative personal journalism. Mm. So my very first hire, when I came back in, as editor in 84, I said to Nick, you know, I want you to be my first hire. Uh, I want to get a crowd of writers who can define the magazine. And that's, of course, what he helped to do. Now, for those who don't know this, you kept copious diary entries. Mm-hmm. What is it about you that you're such a uh, dedicated diarist? I've tried that <laughs> myself. I've got boxes that have books in them and notebooks. And some of them have those little diary-like looks. Them, and you open and there's maybe like a week's worth of entries and then it's gone. <laughs> it's over. Well, I think I'm a compulsive reporter, actually. I mean, I have what I think of as observation greed. Right. Most of the time I'm propelled to go out, not because I actually want to go out, but I think I got to see that. I, you know, I need to see that. So curious. I'm curious. I'm really curious. And I have a, a, a great desire uh, to report on, on, on the action, if you like. So I, I've always done that. I've always and, and because I was alone, my husband at that time, uh, Harry Evans, was uh, actually in Washington working. It was a pre-digital era. So I would come back from these black tie dinners. <laughs> And I would be on my own. I hadn't got kids at that moment. And I sat down and just, it was like wanting to talk to a friend. And so it was literally sort of dear diary almost, you know, and then I just gushed it all out. Plus I was from London and so I, it was all new to me. Everything about this place was wild. I had never seen such excess, such money, such, uh, you know, I was fascinated both in a sense that it was a little decadent uh, for me. What did your dad do? My dad was a movie producer. He was there. Yeah, I have and what did your producer. mom do? My mom was Laurence Olivier's assistant. <laughs> no. Yeah, she was. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she was. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a thr- I'd love to be Laurence Olivier's yeah, assistant. I know. How long was she his assistant oh, for? Oh, gosh. Oh, what a peasant rogue and peasant slave am I. Yes. Uh, she was his assistant for about five years, and then she married my, my dad. What, so when she was a young woman, she was when she assistant. married. Yeah, she, when she was a, he was his assistant when she was young, and she then met my my father at Pinewood Studios, and and uh, and they got married, and then she became. You my know, God, his Olivia wife. could have been your dad if she played her cards smartly. <laughs> Actually, Maureen O'Hara could have been my mother because my father married Maureen O'Hara first. No. Yes, and it's very funny when uh, when I found in about ten years ago that more, after my father just died, and I was feeling particularly connected to him. Uh, I saw that Morgan O'Hara was uh, signing books uh, uh, at, 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 at some bookstore. Uh, or was it? No, it was the opening. It was it was her movie, the famous Christmas movie, right? Which I, I, I Miracle you know, on Thirty Fourth Street. Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. So she was there at the movie house. So I said to my little girl, you know, then we're going to go and see um, Maureen O'Hara because she was married to Grandpa, and you know, I would I've never met her, and I really want to introduce myself. So I went to this thing, and there was a big line. I introduced myself. I said, Miss O'Hara, I'm George Brown's daughter, and I thought she was going to say. 
How wonderful to see you. I mean, George. And she turned around and she said to me, that man had absolutely nothing to do with me. I have no desire to meet you. Goodbye. Oh, my goodness. Well, how so, sad. It was tragic. How sad. You know, I mean, I, I, I was I was aghast. But I, I have no idea the backstory. It made me immediately think, what the hell really now went you, on? So you're, before your dad obviously was married to your mother and you and you were uh, born into that family, your father had been married to O'Hara, divorced her, and then yes. there's no association with her None. whatsoever. What really? are some of the pictures your father produced? Um, he produced uh, Guns at Batassi, the Miss Mar- Marple's movies. Uh, you know, with Margaret Rutherford. You had no desire to go into the film business? No, because I kind of... Your father's making films. He's married to O'Hara. Your mother's with Olivier. Well, I always felt... You want to go do Tatler? (laughs) Good God. To me, editing and producing are very, very similar. You never wanted to make movies? <laughs> the Vanity Fair Diaries has been bought by, um, uh, has been optioned by Bruna Papandro, who did uh, Big Little Lies. So we might see, you know, that as a streaming video, which would be great fun. Maybe that's a sort of a toehold in. I have lots of ideas for films, actually, a lot. They're the same things. It's all about wrangling the story. Storytelling. Cho- storytelling, tracking down the that's material, it. making the writer do the story you want, casting the thing. So I always felt actually the producing and writing were very similar. The story was the prism into an interesting world. I mean, Dominic Dunn's stories uh, were particularly in that vein. I mean, we, we he did a wonderful story about Betsy Bloomingdale. Uh, Alfred, Alfred Blo- Bloomingdale's Alfred, mistress. Alfred Bloomingdale, the founder of Dinah's Card, his mistress, Vicky Morgan, was found murdered. And they they blamed this guy, Marvin Pancoast, who beat her to death with a baseball bat. But obviously the tension in the story was, was she bumped off? Because there had been this huge palimony case. And so it allowed Nick Dunn to sort of get into the world of the Betsy Bloomingdale society around Mrs. Reagan and tell the story of the sort of slightly dark side, if you like, of uh, Beverly Hills society. How would you describe Nick Dunn, though? I mean, I, I sensed in my tracking of Nick Dunn's career that he was kind of a, a certain type of writer. Then he became, after that, with his own, uh, the murder of his daughter and articles like the Bloomingdale, when he becomes like tales of Hollywood. He gets a little pulpy. Well, actually, he brings a kind of a passionate pursuit of justice to it, actually. So when, for instance, he did the story of the Klaus von Bühler murder case, uh, in which Klaus von Bühler had been accused of uh, trying to kill his wife, who was then in a coma from a diabetes. Sonny von Bühler. That was a way for him to get into the world of Newport and that high society. But it also allowed him to to sort of pursue justice on behalf of the children. So what actually did motivate Nick and did make him better than Pulpy was that he he was always trying to plea, to to solve things for the victim because you know he felt himself it was a victim's rights crusade a, a victim's almost rights underpinning connect. a lot of what yeah he did. and that's what gave his pieces such heart right so when you say you want to go into a world what's one that just intrigued the hell out of you you sat there and go god i love this piece and oh a lot of the foreign stories we did i absolutely loved i mean we did a wonderful piece about baby doc that gone into the strange sort of voodoo atmosphere of, of haiti at the time we did wonderful stories about Africa. Africa. Um, Alex Shumatov was a fantastic writer for us. He did a, the, the sort of definitive piece about the murder of Diane Fossey, the naturalist. Uh, right. And what he what was so great about that piece is everyone was writing about her as a great environmentalist who'd been sort of killed, uh, you know, because of her pursuit of uh, against the poachers. But what it really came out was how troubled she was herself as a woman and how actually she... Uh, she really hated the poachers more than she loved the animals. So this, this, this woman was a really <laughs> disturbed woman, actually, is the truth. And it, was, and it was a very interesting sort of look at this, but, uh, how, what makes a woman live on the edge like that. So these were the kind of stories that, that drove me. And 
I, to make me assign a story, I have to feel this abiding curiosity is like, what is the real story here? Like, what are we missing in all of this? And there are some stories which just grab my imagination. I mean, I, I look at someone like Rex Tillerson now, and I just mm-hmm. think what a great story Rex Tillerson is. Not because of the obvious things, he's Secretary of State, like what's happening, but I see him as a hugely comic character. You know, I, 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 to me, the story is big corporate CEO who everyone is saluted, you know, who, who's got in the boardroom. And now he's stumbled into this completely insane mess. This loony bin. This loony bin. And he's still playing it as a straight man. Yeah. To be going somewhere where he's just dismissed or ignored or he's not in control. Now, somebody said about, about uh, Tennyson who knows him to me, he, Rex runs a very crisp meeting. And I was just thinking, like, a crisp meeting is the opposite of what yeah. he's in. I mean, he's now in this right. rambling, insane yeah. asylum. And right. it's like the message has gone completely off I the I just tree. can't imagine him working for someone else who wasn't somebody that he had just in, 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 that he thought was impeccable. Right. Tillerson working for him just seems like uh, inconceivable to me. Uh, so you're at Vanity Fair for what length of time? I was there for eight and a half years. Eight and, and years. you know, when I took it over, they had 12 pages of advertising. And by the end, of course, it had turned into this juggernaut. We had 1.2 million circulation, 250 pages of ads. But, you know, about a year and a half in, Newhouse was actually about to close it. And he was almost like a kind of James Thurber character because he was this short, nervous, nebbishy little man. Yeah. If you, you know, he, he, he was completely shy. I mean, he once, you know, very touchingly kind of we were riding home in the car. And, and you know, he said, I mean, I don't think that. I don't really think I have any power. You know, I have no power. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I said, but sorry, you know, you own Random House. You know, he said, yeah, but if I told publishers what book to buy, they wouldn't pay any attention to me. And I said, well, but look at all the magazines. He said, yes, but, you know, the magazine editors don't really, I mean, I don't think that. They don't consult me. They don't (laughs) consult me. And he said, actually, and then he mentioned Mr. Sean, who was the editor of The New Yorker at the time. He said, and I find it very hard to get Mr. Sean on the phone. <laughs> so I thought it was so touching in a way because here he was this huge mogul. Yeah. But he it's never his felt company. it. His company. And he, he did love his editors to be stars. I mean, in a way, it was great because, you know, sometimes corporate people are sort of don't like their employees to have attention. And, and they're sort of, you have to be careful because you don't get too much attention. And, and he loved it. He loved his editors being starred. And, you know, there was me. There was Anna Winter. There was, I mean, you know, he liked that. And he, he saw us as his studio, really. Where's all the big money come in? Does he own billboards, TV stations, radio? Well, the money, really, there was him and his brother, Donald, and his father, Sam, who was another tiny, nebbishy little fellow uh-huh. with, with, a, with a lot of drive, uh, you know, built this huge newspaper empire from this New Jersey newspaper he began at the beginning. And then he bought monopolies in every town. And soon they had this huge newspaper empire. Right. So the cash cow was the newspapers, actually. And his brother, Donald, ran the newspaper company. And then Sam, the old man, began to get social aspirations. And one day his wife, legend says, says, you know, how much he, she'd like him to buy a copy of Vogue. And he came back and he bought her Vogue. Mitzi Literally. Newhouse. Mitzi Newhouse. She the bought, Mitzi Newhouse. The yeah. Mitzi Newhouse. She bought, the com- he bought her Condinast, essentially. Yeah. Because she had decided she wanted to now be a lady who lunches a little bit, you know. And nothing was better for that than glossy magazines. So the glossy magazines began sort of that way. Sai basically decided he loved magazines. He always had a, he was the East Theater in the family, actually. You know, he appreciated art. He, he, he was fascinated by glamour and magazines. Culture. Culture, yeah. So he, he was much better fit for the magazines than the newspapers. And he became a really great 
magazine publisher. And Vanity Fair and Vogue were enormously profitable. Uh, they were in the end, yeah. We took it from, I mean, at the beginning, Vanity Fair lost $40 million. And then I came in and we, by the time I left, it was in profit. And now, of course, you know, after years, it's, it's a big cash cow. Is that his gift that he placed the bet and he stayed with the bet? He didn't, he didn't falter. Yeah, that was what was so great. He stayed so with rare. you. He stayed with it. And he really backed me. I mean, now there was a moment of uh, tremor there. I mean, a year and a half in, you know, we were very much liked by readers, but the advertisers were lagging. And it was still losing money. And I was off in the West Coast about to go on the Merv Griffin show to talk about this great cover we had on the Reagans Dancing and Kissing, which was one of our great covers. And I suddenly realized that, you know, everybody I was trying to hire was getting stalled. And I called up the office and I said, what's happening? And they said, well, you better come back and talk to Mr. Newhouse, which I did, only to discover that he was on the point of folding the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I had to really talk. That surprised you? I was aghast. I said, you can't, you can't. And I showed him everything I had lined up. You were on the verge. We were on the verge. And he gave us another, he said, okay, you've got another year, you know. And in that year, we really pulled it out because that's when we had the big class from Beulah. What do you think it is is about you that got Newhouse to give you another year? What's it about you? What's your gift? Actually, what is it about him, really? Because, well, I showed him what we had. You know, I, I you believed. You believed. I, I believed. And I, I, you know, I called everybody in the company. I just galvanized everybody to just work on him. And I said, you've got to give us. Actually, he said, you've got two years. And I always knew that was really a year. You know, when they say two years, it's really a year. So when the magazine blasts off to, under your tenure and becomes this must read for everybody, when does it become apparent to you that it's time to go? Well, I'm very restless type. I mean, you know, in the same way I'd left Van- Tatler uh, after Vanity Fair, I'd been there for eight and a half years. I had two children. I didn't. I didn't want to. I, I was actually feeling a little restless, but I had the young kids, so I didn't want to. You were married to Harold by now. I was married to Harold. I had a child of three and of four, and one of um, uh, one. And I was beginning to get restive. Uh, I was also kind of tired of the celebrity culture stuff. Actually, well, I mean, t- I, t- discuss that. Why? Yeah. Well. I got tired of the conversation, which is, well, can Madonna do Thursday or can she do Friday? You know, she doesn't like the photographer. It was just catering it was, it was to catering. celebrities. Catering to celebrities began to kind of which was your stock, and you had to cater. We had to. to. Yeah. We had to. They were our bread and butter, and you know, they sold the magazine, of course. Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown. The second half of our conversation covers life after Vanity Fair. Her first stop was the New Yorker. She was succeeded there by David Remnick, whom she hired. On Here's the Thing, Remnick told me there's no official system for developing future New Yorker contributors. So you might get lucky. The farm system is the mail. The farm system is whoever's sending us stuff. You know, people think I'm kidding around. People email me every day. I probably get 15 emails a day that go directly to me because my email is not that hard to figure out. I have an idea. Here's my short story. Now, most of them are not going to work. Once in a while, though, it happens. Hear more stories from the New Yorker's David Remnick at heresthething.org. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Tina Brown grew tired of catering to celebrities at Vanity Fair. She was in the running to be transferred to the new jewel in Condé Nast's crown, the New Yorker. Things weren't going well there, but the old guard didn't want rescuing by the likes of Tina Brown. Rumors were flying. Rather like the beginning, when, when I kept hearing about Vanity Fair, Cy had bought the New Yorker in the meantime, Cy Newhouse. He had got rid of Mr. Sean, the great legendary editor, and put in... Uh, Bob Gottlieb, who's a fantastic book editor, but a bit like his mistake at Vanity Fair, it didn't make him a great magazine editor. You mm-hmm. know, the fact that he was a great book editor is a different thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, are there those people who would disagree with you, or those people who they were pretty happy with Bob Gottlieb as the editor? Because we're going to we're gonna get to the subject of the resistance you were. You... Yeah, no, actually, I think the people at the New Yorker. I mean, Bob Gottlieb was unlucky because he followed a great legend. He'd been there for thirty years, forty years, right? Mr. Right. Sean was one of the great legends. It was Mr. Sean, Mr. Sean, you, you had to put on <laughs> white gloves to yes. even speak to him. Yes. And so poor Bob Gottlieb then came into the situation where everybody was very upset about no the firing. No one can win. Yeah. No, but then he didn't really know how to do a, a, a magazine, and uh, you know he did some good things. But so, but when I came in, you see, I'd just done a cover with Vanity Fair with Demi Moore naked and pregnant, right? I know. And it, <laughs> it was something of a sensation. Yes. Annie Leibovitz was the to other the least. wonderful thing we ever worked with. And so they thought, here comes this, uh, the girl who did. Uh, right. I'm under the Demi impression that it, the New Yorker, it was divided. I mean, I don't, I don't have any empirical data here, but it was divided into two groups: those who were elated you were coming mm-hmm. to kind of save the magazine and right. make right. improve the sales. And those who felt that you weren't, you know, uh, uh, you'd left the Oxford behind and you were more right. tattler than Oxford. Exactly. And, you know, I understand why they were nervous, frankly. I mean, why wouldn't they be? But um, and the very first meeting that I had at the New Yorker, there was all of these. I and mean, I was the first woman, obviously, because I'd only been four editors and they'd all been men. So I come into this room and there were all of these men sitting around the table. Now, talk about, the, now talk about that. What's it like for a woman who's 
uh, in charge in 92. Well, it was— In a place like that where I think they were a bit more— Old Guard, Very the Times, guard. all these places here, women don't always have a great time Well, there. one of the writers, and I think it was kind of endemic, referred to me as the girl in the wrong dress, okay, which really explains in a nutshell the attitude to me, which is like, what is she doing coming in here, this, you know, there's a woman who doesn't understand us. And, you know, there was a lot of resistance, and I think some of it was misogynist, there's no doubt about it. They really How'd you handle that? I just blazed through it. You know, I mean, you just, you just like, I just rage through it. Uh, and, you know, and I won some of them around too, you know, actually. Because what I found was, uh, you know, one thing I, I, I'm a big believer in is really listening to who's there, right? So I didn't go in and, and do stuff like just fire everybody. I mean, I did fire actually 70 people in the end. But I did listen to who was there and I really made quick distinctions about who I thought had it and who didn't. And there were some wonderful older people there. I mean, people like John Updike and Roger Angel and, I mean, Lillian Ross. These people were absolutely fabulous and golden. And they actually did welcome me. The people who didn't welcome me were, were the sort of um, 40, 50-year-olds, actually, who felt their identity depended on the New Yorker. I found that the greatest generation group, like Brennan Gill and Roger Angel, were confident enough not to feel their whole identity depended on the uh, fake ivy, if you like, of the William Sean karma. Mantle. Mantle. Yeah. I mean, John Updike was up for adventure. I mean, he was sick of doing book reviews. You know, uh -huh. he was quite happy to go off and write about Oscar Knight or something. You know, yeah. I mean, it was, just, it was interesting to him. What did you say to yourself? What needed to change there? Well, what I wanted to do was to hire a bunch of amazing writers who I would I felt So younger. hiring is job one. Hiring was job one. And I did. I mean I hired David Remnick, you know, who succeeded me. I hired Malcolm Gladwell. I hired Jeffrey Tubin. I hired Jane Mayer. I hired Anthony Lane from London. John La. Great film critic, I mean, by the way. Yeah, wonderful yeah. film critic. John La. Who was I, I don't like saying that because film critics are not always kind no, to no, me in the past. But Lane's wonderful. a wonderful writer. Wonderful yeah. writer. Absolutely marvelous. He was only 27 when I, when I hired him. Uh, you know, I hired Jerome Groupman, the great medical writer, and Atul Gawande and Henry Louis Gates. I mean, I did bring in the most amazing writers, and they're all still there. And I also brought in uh, some amazing editors, too. And I actually brought in a lot of women. I mean, uh, my executive editor, Dorothy Wickenden, who's still there, my managing editor, Pam McCarthy, who's still there. There were all of these great women that I brought in. You had to get rid of some people? A lot, yeah. I got yeah. And when you do that, is it describe without naming names? What's, what's that process like? Well, no, one thing Short I, and sweet? No, as a matter of fact, I, I actually think it... Uh, you really need to be very sensitive when you when you are hiring people. I didn't always get it right. Sometimes it blows up and it gets it's wrong, or I didn't do it right. But when I did it right, I actually think it takes several conversations because what I learned was the first conversation you have to try to explain that this isn't working out, but they don't hear it. Right, interesting. <laughs> and there's a second conversation, and then the third conversation you want someone else to have the conversation. But you know, I do feel keeping dignity is incredibly important. Do you argue on the side of being generous in terms of sefferences yes. and people who they really think they're going to have this job for the rest of their lives probably, don't well, they? Well, one of the things that was so great about Newhouse, because I couldn't be generous unless he let me be. But he right? was generous. He really was, actually. I mean, that was one of the great things about Cy. He didn't, as long, you know, once he decided to move on, there was never an argument about this person is having to hire a lawyer to say, I need more. You know, he was very generous like that. He would just say to people, for instance, when he hired my predecessor at Vanity Fair, he said, look, I'm going to fire him, but I'll keep him on for life and I'll tell him he can go to Europe twice a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, who does that, mm -hmm. honestly? I mean, it's pretty unusual. And so Cy was wonderful, like mm -hmm. that. very, very generous. And, you know, we had a, a tough time, you know, kind of getting this thing to work. I mean, it was losing 
20 million when I took it over. I mean, we Why was that? Why was that? Where have those readers gone? Well, they, they'd aged. You know, it was they'd simply aged. that they had really aged. And we just needed to, to, to completely spruce up the Open act. the windows. Open the windows. And actually, I brought photography into The New Yorker, which yes. I had never had. I, br- I brought Richard Avedon in yeah. to take pictures. <laughs> uh, I hired Art Spiegelman to be one of the cover artists. I brought in his wife, Francoise Mouly, to be the art director. So I really comp- brought my visual sense to The so New Yorker. So you bring the tools you have for the other magazines to yes. this with, with some changes. And, uh, and I redesigned it. I mean, we, we, we really sort of facelifted it, but kept its kind of purity. But where you have... Um, where you talk about uh, coming from Vanity Fair with a uh, an abundance, if you will, not exclusively so, but an abundance of celebrity culture. You come into The New Yorker, do you decide you have to have some? You need to start to insert a little of that DNA into The New Yorker as well? Definitely. Who hired I mean, Ted Friend? Well, actually, I did. But, you did? Uh, yeah, he's excellent. But, but in fact, the one... I would beg to differ about that. Well... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have an argument about that. That's okay. You've Through no fault ideas. of his own. Okay, I'll, we'll leave that with you. Um, for instance, Jeff Tubin, who I hired as our legal sort of analyst, he was a, an assistant DA at the time, young uh, assistant DA, and I wanted to cover law. When the O.J. Simpson story broke, Jeff actually had had two or three pieces that hadn't worked out. And I was beginning to think, oh, my God, I made a mistake with this guy, Jeff Tubin. His book about the Clintons is one of my favorite books. Oh, such yeah. a wonderful writer. But he went off to L.A., I said, why don't you just go and cover this O.J. Simpson mm-hmm. thing and see whether this pans out. That story just took a hold of yeah. Jeff. He broke yeah. every Both piece of news on it. Yep. And he became – and what was wonderful was he brought his kind of legal rigor mm-hmm. to the story. But at the same time, it was the great, you know, compulsively glitzy story of our time. Mm-hmm. That's what I think I did bring into the New Yorker DNA was a sense that, you know, by doing – Jeff Tubin on, on, on O.J. Simpson, I kind of set that table, which now today where Ronan Farrow can do Harvey Weinstein, it's a legitimate subject matter. So how long are you at The New Yorker? I was at The New Yorker for nearly seven years. Did you keep a New Yorker diary? Less often, <laughs> alas, because it was a weekly and I had a kid and, you know, I, so it was much harder for me to do Busy. it. And I, uh, you know, I regret that I didn't write it with as much kind of intensity and detail that I did the Vanity Fair diaries. So I didn't do as much. And then after six and a half, seven years, I began to get frustrated there because I always felt that The New Yorker should be more, by the end, that it should be more than a magazine. I wanted to see it be a radio show, right. a book company. Just describe real quickly, how is it different at The New Yorker? Well, Compare and contrast the two. It, it was much more um, open warfare against me at The New Yorker at the beginning, you know, because we had this huge kind of uh, pushback from the old guard expecting that this was going to be me putting Demi Moore in, in, in the magazine. I mean, for instance, the cartoonist, uh, Bob Mankoff, he thought that I was going to uh, cancel all the cartoons and just put pictures in. And, and of course, it was the reverse was true. I actually gave the car, Bob Mankoff, I made him cartoon editor, and I actually gave, you know, a, a, him a whole cartoon issue every Christmas to do. But He uh, got a documentary out of it, yeah, too. Yeah, he got a documentary, and I started the cartoon bank, and all of these things that, that, that he's wonderful. He's absolutely yeah. fast. We, we became the, the best of friends. But but for the first two two or three years, it was this kind of, what is she trying to do? But then I think what happened basically was that a lot of the defectors left. The new amazing people were so good. I mean, when you have people like Remnick and Rick Hertzberg, who I brought in, and <gasps> I who I Rick love Hertzberg. him so dearly. Oh, I mean, God. he's the cleverest and the best. And, you know, that took, it was like a graft. It was like a skin graft, right? And, it, and there was a wonderful moment, actually, when I was having a sandwich with John Updike in the office. And before he came, Anthony Lane, the film critic, said to me, oh, I hear you're having lunch with John Updike. I am, he's my hero. I just want to meet him. So I said, okay, well, when I'm in the middle of lunch, you know, just knock on the door and I'll introduce you to John. Knock, knock. Through the, and 
As he comes in, John Updike jumps up and says, Anthony Lane, I've been so looking forward to meeting you. It was a wonderful moment because it was a, you saw the blood exchange had yeah. happened, you know, which is yeah. at the old guard. And, and from that moment, really, you know, it all settled down and we were soon the most amazingly yeah, exciting just, ship. Just, so when the time comes to leave The New Yorker, I mean, I'm sure having taken two magazines and Three. really, well, well, well Tatler, yeah, but, 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 but here in the U.S. Vanity Fair and the New Yorker and having tremendous success with them and, and new house behind you, what did you fantasize would be next? Well, I had this fantasy of, of, of an extended media laterally. You see, as I said, I wanted to do radios, books, TV shows out of the New Yorker brand. Sign Newhouse, for all of his uh, wonderfulness, did not get that. That's where he stumbled, actually, because, frankly, had he done that 20 years ago, I mean, this was like... He didn't understand where we were headed. He did not understand where we were headed. Condé Nast did miss the, miss the trick when it came to getting ahead of that curve. I mean, the things that I told Cy to do in the 90s were the things that they should have done, because I was I did see it early, probably too early, and too early for him to see it. you anything. sound nuts. I sound <laughs> no, nuts. Okay, it was okay, like, right, settle right, down, right. do your magazine, like, go back to your knitting, stop. Go have lunch with Updike. Like, go have lunch with Updike. Yeah, and I was thinking, I want to do... So, along comes... A person who's been in the news lately, yes, Mr. Harvey Weinstein, yes. uh, who comes to me and says, I want you to come and do a magazine with Miramax. Right. You can do books. You can do films. You can right. do all of these things. The thing um, that you, the idea you had, yeah, my he idea. wanted to back you. you Talk know? is the magazine. Talk magazine, we called it. So I said, okay, I'll do this. And... I thought that he was the sort of the missing piece of entrepreneurial verve that was going to help me develop these thoughts. And, you know, I leapt out of uh, the ivory tower mm -hmm. into a, well, I wanted it to be a rough and tumble thing. I was ready for that. I'd been at the court of Louis XIV, as it were, for 17 years. And I thought this will be exciting and rugged and I'm going to now... And how does Newhouse compare to Harvey Weinstein? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, it was like a bad dream. Newhouse was always sort of courteous, always warm, really. And, uh, you know, he was difficult. A gentleman. Yeah, he, he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman. But he could, I mean, he could be very difficult. He could be very irritating. But he was never abusive or in any way inappropriate or I anything. Find that, I find it unbelievable that Harvey was abusive to you. Well, he was, actually. I mean, You'd you know, have no, battles no, about I things. Mean, yeah. I, I mean, he basically was... Well, he, Harvey, the problem with Harvey is he and I immediately had a completely opposed vision of what it should be. I mean, I wanted to leave... Uh, the New Yorker and Vanity Fair to do something obviously different from either of them, right? I had this concept of a literary news magazine that was going to be like an, a European news magazine. I was in love with magazines like Parry March and Stern, and I love those magazines. And I wanted to do a European news magazine with a New Yorker quality typeface and content with amazing photography like Parry March. That mm -hmm. was the idea with a cover with multiple images on it and all of the things that hadn't been really done here. I love those magazines. I did the first couple, couple of issues. They were amazingly good. But then within about two months, I mean, Harvey immediately started to say, I want Vanity Fair. I want you to just a copy Vanity Fair. I want you to have, you know, Matt Damon on the cover. I want you to... Cross so promotion. Completely. And I, you know, and it became so frustrating to me because I felt that I was being forced into this kind of celebrity journalism again, but in this wildly unstable environment where also but, I was having... In a very ham-fisted way, by the very way. Very ham-fisted way. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I, and I found it very, very distracting. And hiring and firing. Was that another uh, point of friction? How Absolutely. Did he well, no, I, I had my own team at first, but I did find, of course, that Harvey wanted to go around town assigning things all 
the time. And I mean, that never happened before. To yeah, me. There were I deals mean, that were made by Harvey for, the, mean, for, for talk and for the book publisher. Exactly. It was like flight attendants on private jets. Yeah, and so there forth. was a lot of that. I would run into a person who would tell me that his piece was coming in on Wednesday, you know, and I would say, what piece, you know, and how am I going to pay for it? Because it was also my budget that was like streaming out the door. So I, you know, I, I felt extremely uh, frustrated with it. But, you know, it was. Um, Having leapt out of the New Yorker, obviously it was a, it was heartbreaking. Oh, too. Yeah. It was heartbreaking, really, yeah. what happened. And of course, then uh, it didn't go well because you know the the, the, the how kind long of, did it last? Uh, it lasted for for two years, and then actually nine eleven really put the the kibosh on it because then advertising disappeared, and then you were going to have to have deep pockets behind you. Uh, did you walk away? You just was like you got in a I, car like service a, and took off and never spoke to him again, or was there an no, ongoing? No, actually, no. As a matter of fact. Uh, you know, I stayed on perfectly okay terms with Harvey after that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, what happened, happened. So you write the thing about Lady Diana, who I met once. And want to know something? She was so much more beautiful and more interesting in person. So much more. It almost didn't do her justice. She was stunning. Stunning. And it was all about mm. the coloring, wasn't oh, it? Oh, my God. I mean, it was this peach. She's gorgeous. Peach velvet face and this huge limpid blue feeling eyes you which people her. didn't realize. I did, I did and I, I always felt like you did. Uh, in fact, I had lunch with her in New York about six weeks before she died and when she walked into the Four Seasons it was just so, she's so stunning you know, because she's so in, huge. I mean, she's like this gazelle who's like, you know, six foot something it yeah. felt, yeah. you know, in the shoes and, and the eyes that were just so enormous and yet she was so lonely talked about loneliness and how, you know, in August, she was dreading August because the children were going off to stay with Charles in Balmoral and how she she said, nobody wants me to have me to stay. And I said, why? Well, what are you talking about? Everybody wants to have you. She said, no, she said, you said the paparazzi come and they go through your garbage. And, you know, you just she said, it's just horrible to have me to stay. She said, I, I am, you know, I have nowhere to go in August. My children are, and I just thought how extraordinary it was that she felt that lonely. But it also did explain when you learned of her death, you know, six weeks later, whatever it was, what she was doing in the south of France. I mean, she was really there because she was so lonely. And along come the Al-Fayed family who have what she called all the toys, i.e. the planes and the bodyguards and, the, you know, and the chauffeurs and so it's on. It's like Jackie Kennedy marrying Onassis. Exactly the same. Some of the most prominent figures, I mean, your peers, if you will, in terms of their prominence in the publishing world, Graydon is leaving, uh, Robbie Meyer, and Jan sold the business. And I'm wondering, it's just technology yeah, is taking I mean, I, over yeah, again. I think digital disruption has become so intense that for many of them, it was like, look, I had a great time and let's leave this now to someone who can just do this reinvention because I, I did my stuff. You could have kept going. Yeah. Did you, did well, you see something? Have, well, no, I, I decided to, to uh, start a live media company because mm. I felt that it was no longer about stories and pictures and captions and words, which is what I love to do, and had become all about how am I going to get the revenue stream? What is the digital platform? You know, all of that anguish that is about process as opposed to stories. And so I now do many of these live events where I can at least uh, showcase incredible stories and put them on the stage and have people watching them, which is what we do with Women in the World, because just magazines cannot anymore survive. This is Kathleen Russo, and that was my summer staff pick. Hope you enjoyed it. Here's the thing. We'll be back with Alec next week.
No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.